Hey guys, it's Matilda Pearl. We've lost too many lives on our roads this year through risks that weren't worth taking. So I've teamed up with the TAC and other artists to use live music as a way of highlighting that life without your mates is as quiet as music without a band. So take extra care out there and let's keep the band together. This is Melbourne. Any night of the week. Fun fact, you could play a live gig in Melbourne every day of the year and still not play at every venue across the city. Staggering, hey. There's so many iconic venues. Melbourne's venue scene is so strong and so supportive of live music that each space has its own special place in people's hearts, for sure. The live music scene is absolutely a part of Melbourne's DNA in the way that the footy is, in the way that the cafes are, in the way that the tram system is. It's a recognisable feature of the city of Melbourne all over the world. It's spiritual. (laughs) People come together. I know more people that have had a religious experience at a gig than at a church. These venues are Melbourne's churches. Amen to that. When it comes to music, you can stream it. You can download it. You can listen to it on the radio. Or you can play it on your stereo at home. But nothing beats experiencing music live. I'm Alex Leahy and welcome to Always Live, a podcast series that will take you on a journey into the heart of one of the greatest live music scenes in the world. Over 10 episodes, you'll meet the people who make the music and those who make the music happen. The venue owners, the band bookers, the sound people, the roadies, the movers and shakers and the fans. Throughout it all, we're trying to get to the heart of one key question. What is that intangible thing which seems to connect Melbourne and Victoria to live music like no other place in the country? Why is Melbourne considered the live music capital of Australia and the world's preeminent music city? And why do Victorians care so much about live music that they literally took to the streets? And people who live in Melbourne do vote with their feet almost every night of the week. I think the Victorian music scene is quite different to uh, most places in Australia, to be brutally honest. I mean, for me, it's probably, especially in Melbourne, it's the only place that I think you can still go out on a Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday night and go and see live bands. Melbourne and Victoria is one of my favourite favourite places in the world to see music, to be making music in, to experience music. There are so many incredible bands that are making music out of this city, so many incredible producers. There are so many fantastic studios to be making music out of. And yeah, I'm so proud to be a Melbourneian and I'm so proud of this city and it's definitely a very special place to be making music. I think Alice Ivy kind of digs Melbourne. What do you reckon? And why not? Melbourne's a city of stars, bars and guitars. So just how many live music venues are there in Melbourne? 
I'm sure you can name a stack of them, but I doubt you'd be able to list them all. By last count, there are 465 live music venues in Melbourne. It sounds like a lot, and it is. New York has 453, Tokyo, 385, London, 245. On a per capita basis, Melbourne has the most live music venues of any city anywhere in the world. I think Victoria, with regard to venues, is like one of the most amazing places in the world, you know, and I've sort of travelled a bit, but I always come back to Melbourne and, you know, it's just like the epicentre of live music, like it really is, like it has so many venues and it's true, like you wouldn't be able to, it'd take you ages to play every single venue in not only Melbourne but Victoria, like so many great regional places you can play We've been to, you know, Bendigo and Ballarat and, you know, Warrnambool and and then out in Gippsland and I remember the Tarwin Lower gig that used to be there. There's just so many venues and it's pretty wild. That's Adelita, echoing the sentiments of so many artists who live and breathe the Victorian live music scene. And there's no doubt, when it comes to live music, we're a state punching well above our weight. Of course, COVID meant that, as an industry... We've been taking way more hits than we've been giving. We've been battered and bruised, but we've also bounced back. And how good is it to be back out going to gigs again? Absolutely. And when it was taken away from us across COVID, and when you're able to go and experience it again post-COVID, you know, that first strum of the electric guitar it almost cut through you and it was like oh my god I've missed this so much the lights went down you know the audience erupted and away it went and it was it was just a a magical moment again that gee we've really missed that. That's Steve Smith the CEO of Always Live an organization dedicated to the celebration of live music across Victoria. Always Live was a dream of the late, great Michael Gudinski. MG was incredibly proud of the fact that Victoria was considered by many as the home of concerts, but knew it was something that we could never take for granted. We've got to keep evolving the industry down here. Always Live is not responsible for the full recovery of the industry, but boy, we're going to try and play our part as much as we possibly can. The initial thinking behind Always Live was to create a 10-day music festival, but it soon became much more than that. Now... It's about all kinds of gigs in all kinds of places right across the entire state, no matter what the size. Later in this series, we'll reveal how Always Live managed to land one of the biggest bands in the world, the Foo Fighters, for a one-off gig in Geelong. Now, I've been lucky enough to play at many of the venues we're going to feature in this podcast, And if you're a music fan living in Melbourne, you'll know these venues without even saying their full names. The Espy, The Corner, Cherry, The Workers, The Prince, The Croxton, The Northcote, and so it goes. These are places with incredible histories. When we reopened the Powers Kitchen and a few of the eateries and stuff in 2015-16, we went back into history and... Like, it was actually a base for General MacArthur in the World War II. <laughs> a lot of people don't know that the White Stripes actually came to Melbourne very early in their career, came to Australia, 
played all of the venues. And on that first tour, I don't think they played the... They weren't even big enough to play the corner. So they played the tote. They played the Empress Hotel. I think it was seven gigs. One of those might have been in Geelong at the Barwon Club. And that was the only gigs they played in Australia. They didn't. They couldn't get a gig in Sydney or uh, Brisbane. And then, you know, a year or so later, they exploded and were back. And again, by the time they came back, it was, you know, sold out at the Corner Hotel and... Uh, Jack White riding Seven Nation Army uh, backstage at the gig. I think that was one of the secret gigs that everyone knew about kind of scenario. Uh, The Rolling Stones, Mick Jagger also did that secret gig that about 5,000 people, 3,000 people showed up at, you know. (laughs) If only those walls could talk. Well, maybe they can. Actually, we did a gig there. I can't remember who it was with. It might have been with um, Ash Grunwald or someone like that. And one of the crew stayed the night in the theatre and got woken up in the middle of the night with the bath tap turned on full and the bath was running. And he woke up and he thought, that's strange, there was no one else in the theatre. He turned it off, went to bed, he was a bit spooked, bath started up again. And that was it for him, he bolted. And this was a period where Madonna was dabbling in stand-up comedy. And, yeah, you heard me correctly. It was crazy. It was crazy. I've got a photo of Peter Garrett lighting a flare in the pole and I was just like, is this an OHS thing? And he's running around the stage with this flare. And that was the first time I'd ever seen Midnight Oil, one of the first times that I've ever been at the bowl, and I, that, that changed a lot of things for me. He was doing a really good job of it. But halfway through his set, he's just like, he went totally green. (laughs) And he had a spew on stage. And the crowd lost their minds to this. So we're playing as loud as we possibly can. No one really knows these songs. And Marcus is having a spew. We kept playing through it. And bless him, he got back up, turned around, and finished the set. What a legend. As a wise man once said, it's a long way to the top. I tell you, folks, it's harder than it looks. So where do we start this story? Well, in Victoria, they get them young. It might not always play out exactly like this, but as a kid in Victoria, you get a footy team and you fall in love with live music. In the 1980s, the Victorian government started an organisation that's very close to my heart, The Push. The Push helps young people get involved in the music scene. They helped me big time when I was starting out, and I've done a stack of Push gigs. A great friend of mine, Kate Duncan, began her music career singing in bands, Sarah Sarah, Go Betsy, and Jane vs. World. Nowadays, Kate is the CEO of The Push. So when The Push started back in the 80s, it was through some project funding that they got through the Victorian government and the Australian Drug Foundation that was really in response to young people not having opportunities to to see live music and get involved and to stage events that were safe and accessible and drug and alcohol free. Um, And so that really has been a consistent theme, recognising that live music can play a really powerful role in a young person's life when you're kind of figuring out who you are and who your friends are and your identity and what you're into. And yeah, it can be a transformative moment when you go to your first live music event and look around and see like-minded people and find your tribe. 
The push often partners up with another state government initiative, Freezer, which also helps young people put on their own gigs. Damo Costin is the drummer in Melbourne band Motor Ace, who topped the ARIA charts with their second album, Shoot This, back in 2002. Motor Ace did many push and freezer gigs. We always used to go up to Albury Wodonga and play the freezer events up there. And we got to play with Jebediah one weekend up there. Wodonga had a massive freezer, you know, the freezer shows. Um, and we used to go out right out in the suburbs and there we would get a decent fee, you know, maybe get $1,500 from freezer to go out and play. And you'd go out there and you'd play to, a, you know, 1,500 kids, you know, who were probably their first ever show. And I found some art the other day where it was us, something for Kate and maybe Body Jar on a lineup somewhere, right out in, I don't know, some suburb. I remember there was a hall that we played down Winchelsea. There's a hall, an old church. It sits in this middle of this paddock and it was a freezer show and I couldn't believe that people would go down to this place but all of a sudden it was like a Friday night and they switched the lights on and we go in and we do a sound check and then all of a sudden piles of parents would drop their kids off and there's salt and vinegar chips and Coke cans and we would play in this hall but you couldn't believe that, you know, thanks to that freezer initiative which was regional shows for kids out in these spots and they would hang out and it would be three hours of power of punk rock bands or whatever it was and we would just kind of do our thing in these tiny halls and drive home and go, wow, what the hell just happened then? It was quite quite bizarre. Like it was cool how many all-ages shows there were in the sort of 2000s, you know, freezer gigs and stuff. And then just like, yeah, like falling in with different groups of people where there'd be like a bit of a, a music scene and that sense where like, you know, you book a show and then someone else books a show and you're sort of sharing the load around like that organising. That was like a really special thing that I think has felt possible in Victoria because we've got such a wealth of live music venues. That's Melbourne artist June Jones, who's just released her third album. And what a great title, Pop Music for Normal Women. For so many Victorians, like June, their first live experience was an all-ages gig. Yeah, I think almost 4 million people that have had a a live music experience through a push event over the years, which is phenomenal. And I believe that the push has played an integral part in making Melbourne the live music capital of our country because it is a part of our ecosystem from when you're a teenager and you're, you know, if it's in high school and you're, you're going to your council hall and going to that first live music event, you know, that becomes a part of your, your DNA and then what you want to be seeing as you progress in in your life into adulthood. Yeah, I think we've played an enormous part in the live music ecology of this state. Before the big day out arrived in Melbourne, the Pushers' annual big gig, Pushover, was the state's biggest all-ages music event. Killing Heidi were discovered at Pushover, and it was also a special gig for Kate Duncan. I had my first live music experience at Pushover 98 at the Sydney Maya Music Bowl. Uh, That was the year that Rancid headlined and The Living End, although I I don't think I necessarily went for those acts. I I went to one of the smaller stages and remember seeing Snout for the first time, and that was a, a pretty cool early live music memory. 
But yeah, these events attracted tens and thousands of young people every year. Um, it was a low price point and had really big headliners, but also had Battle of the Bands and opportunities for, for young emerging artists from across the state to, to come down and play on the day. Pushover events were very instrumental for thousands of young live music fans back in the 90s and, and early 2000s. The young punks of today will be the industry leaders of tomorrow, as Kate's own pushover story illustrates. Yeah, so I remember, I think it was November, uh, I think I just turned 16, and my friend and I actually jumped the fence. And um, early in the day, there was some... tens of thousands of people around the festival site. And, you know, I, I went to a pretty stuffy old girls school in high school and everyone, you know, wore uniforms. And then for that one day to be able to put on my Triple J t-shirt and I'm sure there was like some bad necklace or something. My hair was probably pink or the like for the weekend. And just walking around and, and seeing people that looked just like me was, was a pretty powerful moment. And um, definitely solidified for me that there was a community of people that I felt safe and accepted by and and that is the true power of music for me. A Battle of the Bands competition called Push Start was also part of the Pushover event and helped uncover a stack of great acts including Warnable's finest, Airborne, who went on to become a major rock band around the world and are currently killing it in Europe. The Pushers mentoring programs have also given a leg up to artists such as Courtney Barnett, Angie McMahon, Alice Ivey, and me. So big ups to the push. Before we leave Kate Duncan, there's one final question. Why is Victoria such a great location for live music? The fact that we have the opportunity to experience it at a young age um, through the programs that the push delivers and the Victorian government's freezer program, you know, it makes it accessible at a young age and then, you know, we're, we're hooked, we're addicted and we want to keep being a part of it for future years. I think that's a really important contributing factor. But also, you know, I just love that particularly in the inner city of Melbourne, you know, Fitzroy and Collingwood and and Richmond and surrounding suburbs, Northgate and Thornbury, you know, you can walk up the streets and there's live music venues on every corner. And that's something that, you know, particularly in Australia, you know, you don't have that in other states and territories. And yeah, I think that's something that is incredibly special to Melbourne. Dave Rogers is a member of much-loved Melbourne band Klinger and works alongside Kate Duncan at The Push. So does Dave have a theory on why Melbourne's such a great live music city? I think Melbourne's a great live city for two reasons that actually might be the same reason. I think because it's so cold here for so much of the year, we want a a nice cosy pub atmosphere, so our pubs are fantastic. And live music and pubs have been really that foundation that the Victorian music industry has been built on. So I think in cities with good weather, they don't really make music as good as cities with cold weather. Yeah. I mean, that's really interesting. I guess I never thought of it that that much before. Like Maybe I'm a bit older now. I'm just like, whenever the weather's a bit overcast, I just want to stay inside. Matty O's the drummer from British India. Yeah, I guess it made you work harder for it. If you really wanted to do it, you will drive to the other side of town and get drenched just to play a gig. You know, like it's like you really had to go out there and, and kind of earn it in a way and you appreciate the good weather that much more. But I think from a songwriting point of view, I mean, there's nothing better than bunkering down in the studio or the rehearsal space when the weather is miserable and being creative. Adelita agrees with the theory that bad weather 
leads to good music. I think, like, the weather's got something to do with it. Just because it's cold, people sort of stay indoors a bit more and get really creative and it has, yeah, just that sort of real insular, creative cauldron kind of vibe. Journalist and broadcaster Paul Cashmere reckons there's another reason live venues thrived in Victoria. The pokies didn't arrive until the 90s, nearly 40 years after they were introduced in New South Wales. We uh, didn't think we had an advantage of at the time, but actually did in not having poker machines. So while New South Wales was attracting people into venues to play poker machines, uh, that wasn't something, gambling wasn't something that was in Victoria at the time. So to attract people into your pub and club, we used live music. And uh, the number of venues as a result of that, just at that point, with all those other components, allowed for the industry to explode. If you're planning a big night out, leave the car at home. If you can, use public transport, catch a taxi, rideshare, or organise a designated driver. Let's all get home safely and keep the band together. As for those other components, well, one thing led to another. The national pop paper Go Set started in Melbourne in the 60s and that gave the world Molly Meldrum. And Molly gave us Countdown, the most influential Australian music show of all time. Countdown was shot at the ABC in Melbourne. So if bands wanted to be on the show, they had to come to Melbourne. And of course, they did some gigs while they were here. (laughs) Rude not to. Around the time Countdown started, Mushroom Records took off. It was also based in Melbourne, as was the company's booking agency, Premier Artists, led by the legendary Frank Stavala. Many of the great promoters got their start booking bands in the Melbourne music scene, including a Tasmanian guy named Michael Chug. So here's a story for you. Chuggy was a sports commentator on radio in Tassie, but he lost his job when he accidentally swore when he was calling a cycling race. Instead of shotgun, he said shitgun. Now, there's a sliding doors moment. Instead of becoming the next Bruce McAvaney, special, Chuggy became a promoter. And Paul Cashmere ranks him right alongside Michael Gudinski. Well, you know, if I needed to bow down in front of anyone with a we're not worthy, we're not worthy, it would be Michael Chug. Chuggy really had the vision for seeing something that was more of a hobby at one point back in the past say, the late 60s into the early 70s, and taking that vision and turning it into the major industry that we have today. Chuggy uh, was the manager of Billy Thorpe and the Aztecs and probably became Thorpe's closest friend over all those years. So, you know, somebody like a Chuggy who still to this day champions live Australian music and even pre-recorded Australian music like no one I've ever seen. Somebody such like a Michael Chug is probably, you know, if we had a knighthood for the music industry, he over anyone else would be the one I'd put up at number one. While we're talking about legends, many legends of the Melbourne music scene didn't actually start here. Paul Kelly, he comes from Adelaide. Sampa the Great was born in Zambia. Tim Rogers, you and I formed in Sydney. Ronnie Pino, Died Pretty also started in Sydney. Dave Graney and Claire Moore began their musical journey in Adelaide. 
Courtney Barnett grew up in Sydney and Tassie. Gareth Lydiard of the Drones and Tropical Fuckstorm was born in WA, spent time in London, then came to Melbourne in the year 2000. And the late, great Spencer P. Jones, well, he came from New Zealand. We get asked by other musicians, like, they'll say, we're thinking of moving to Melbourne, what do you think? And it's always, yeah, you got to move. That's the wonderful Vicar Bull, who we'll be hearing more from later in the series. As Vicar said, Melbourne just seems to be a magnet for artists and industry people. Writer and director Jonathan Alley came to Melbourne from New Zealand. Not long after he arrived, he started doing a show on Triple R and was a fixture of the radio station for 29 years. The thing that struck me about coming to Melbourne immediately was that the history of the place was much more ingrained than I expected. And there were people that had been playing for 20, 30 years in the same venues that were still playing. Whereas in a lot of other towns, a lot more transient. There are people going through New York or London or LA or Berlin just all the time, and they're always moving. Melbourne felt much more ingrained and at home and comfy. I mean, I think a lot of music towns, even if they have a healthy scene, don't have the generosity that Melbourne does. With Melbourne, what it really comes down to is this word community. And lots of music towns have great scenes. They don't necessarily have good communities. And when you say the word community, people tend to think it's something kind of soft-headed and naff, and it's not. What a community is is actually really important to sort of think about and define. Well-functioning communities disagree all the time. They're really diverse. They're dysfunctional at times. They change, they evolve, but they continue to exist because at the end of the day, the ecosystem kind of feeds itself. You know, what is needed in the community is in the community for what's needed. It's like an ecosystem. And at the end of the day, I think Melbourne people are very generous and want to give somebody a go. And that's a very Melbourne thing. A big part of the Melbourne music scene is community radio, with the city boasting a stack of great stations, including Triple R and PBS. I think once people see what a community can achieve, they tend to believe in it a little bit more. Because we've had a long-standing community radio scene here, it's the envy of the rest of the country and, and parts of the developed world. Certainly when bands come here from New York or London, they say, we don't have anything like Triple R, PBS and 3CR where we come from. And I think that's so true and makes such a difference. If there's such a title as Queen of the Melbourne live music scene, then that crown would probably go to Mary Mikalakos. I think Mary's seen more gigs than anyone else, and she can still be seen at two or even three gigs in the one night. Mary was inducted into the Music Victoria Hall of Fame in 2020, and we'll catch up with her again when we tell the tale of the Brunswick Ballroom, the Evelyn, and Festival Hall. Mary got her start as a volunteer at Triple R when she was just 13, and she still loves the station. Oh, absolutely. Triple R is the foundation of Melbourne's live music scene in so many ways. It's really supportive of a lot of the events, particularly in the 90s when Melbourne's music scene was establishing itself and it took over from Sydney because there was, a, even though uh, Melbourne had a very strong live scene in the 60s and 70s. In the late 80s, I think a lot of musicians from Melbourne started moving to Sydney because I think Sydney had a very strong live scene around that time. And a lot of great bands came out of Sydney. 
But you can even trace this from where, you know, Spencer P. Jones was living. You know, he moved to Sydney in the 80s and then moved back to Melbourne in the 90s. And same with Kim Salmon and a lot of, um, you know, even Ron Espino. Um, They all end up in Melbourne. And so Triple R definitely has been a main force in Melbourne's strong live music scene. Jonathan Alley continues the community radio story. Talk to the promoters who bring the international bands out. They can sell a couple more shows, two or three more shows in Melbourne because community radio will help get people out to those venues that they can't sell on the other state capitals. Community radio has a long history of being able to transform international tours that were line ball into profitable affairs. And that keeps the industry going. You know, I mean, Sydney might have a greater population, but, and then no disrespect to 2SER FBI because they're good stations, but the reality is they just don't have the reach of a triple R and PBS. A nice example of Jonathan Alley's community theme popped up when we spoke to a legend of Melbourne's indie scene, Bruce Milne, who's now a co-owner of one of Melbourne's great record stores, Gravel Records. I went to the Brunswick Ballroom not long ago and saw Matt Walker, well, his band Los Ragas and um, Maggie Alley play, and that was great, just seeing two great acts, and it was fun again. Degrees of separation, uh, Maggie's dad, Jonathan, did the show before me in Triple R every Sunday night until quite recently, and Maggie used to be in there every Sunday night doing her homework. So I sort of, I, th- I think she's 20 now, but I've basically known her since she was 10. And then she started doing some gigs and I saw some and we got her to play on a record store day outside the shop and uh, when she was qu- still quite young, it was quite strange seeing a, a 16-year-old woman singing a Towns Van Zandt song and uh, um, but then seeing her and then she worked with Matt Walker he produced her first record EP and just seeing her up on stage as a confident and talented woman was really great Thank you very much this is coming to you live From Men at Work to Maggie Alley Goanna to Gautier Kylie to Courtney Barnett Melbourne has always had a strong live scene and venues that have written some incredible chapters in the state's cultural history. For venues to start writing new chapters in that history, Dale Packard, the general manager of Music Victoria, says it's up to all of us to keep supporting live music. Going to gigs, going to live music, making that part of what you do on a weekend or a weeknight. I think a lot of people since COVID have just got used to being in their homes. I think we've seen a bit of a drop-off in audience figures. At one point, I think you'd say that that was to do with hesitancy around being around lots of people with a virus circulating. You know, people were a little bit concerned about going out in public for, you know, very valid health reasons. I get the sense that now it's not so much that, it's that people have just become a bit conditioned socially to be in their homes. And it's just going to take a little bit of kind of cultural, social adjustment to kind of get used to getting back out there again. And so I think it will swing back. I mean, if you wanted to support local music and venues, yeah, it's going out to gigs, going to record stores, it's just participating in the in the music culture. The legendary Mark Seymour has been a part of Melbourne's live scene for more than 40 years, fronting hunters and collectors, and now Mark Seymour and The Undertow. Having played all around the world, how does he view Melbourne as one of the world's greatest music cities? 
it's definitely better than Sydney. It's hard to know, really. I mean, I know there are cities around the world that have that reputation, and you might know better than me. I mean, you know, like there's places you hear about, like Austin, Texas, and, you know, and, well, God, New York, you know. Um, I don't know. Maybe Melbourne's up there. It's just very easy to get around. It's relatively flat, you know. I mean, the inner north, I reckon, is pretty cool. And I, I used to kind of sneer a bit at the inner north, but actually... Fitzroy Collingwood at the moment, it's just really buzzing. It's just got it's really strong energy, street energy. There's a lot of action there and it's relatively wholesome, you know, dare I say. You know, maybe there's mystery in it. I, I can't really explain why that is, but it's there's a lot of places. You hear music everywhere, you know. Over the years, Melbourne's infamous live music scene has caught the eye of many an interstate muso. People like the hoodoo gurus Dave Faulkner, I can't recall when we first started to break through in Melbourne, but it was a it was something we'd always aimed for. I mean, we wrote a song deliberately mentioning, you know, a Melbourne landmark, uh, a song called Arthur. And we had the, you know, Arthur played the bass, he had an angel's face. And a, a black gelato van down St Kilda Way met with Arthur's taxi by the Prince of Wales. But um, it was actually, we actually deliberately wrote the song with mentioning the Prince of Wales and, uh, you know, St Kilda because we wanted to play in Melbourne and play at the Prince of Wales. So that was a way of making some sort of wish fulfilment. Whatever the reason, the weather, the geography, community radio, the all ages scene, the lack of pokies until the 90s, there's no doubt that Victoria offers up a special kind of live music experience for everyone. And as a result, Victorians are obsessed with going to gigs. But we also have a reputation for being a pretty tough crowd, as Damo Costin explains. Absolutely. I mean, Melbourne City's crowds are very, very cool, hands-in-pockets kind of uber. It's very hard to impress them. And why not? Because I get to see all the biggest acts in the universe every day. These days, more and more of those big acts are starting to branch out from the city and discover some of Victoria's regional venues. We'll pay a visit to some of those later in this series. One of Victoria's most unique venues sits in the little South Gippsland town of Menion. Mal Holtz, the production manager at Menion Town Hall, and he has a wonderful description of the power of live music. To me, live music, it's my fire. It's what keeps me going. I have the radio on in the truck all day, every day. And again, it's still background noise unless there's one or two songs that really grab me. But most of the time, it's just background noise. But when it's live, that's another animal. And when you've got a band that can perform it live and that metaphoric hand comes out and grabs you, it's, it's magic. In episode two of Always Live, we journey into those sticky carpet venues, the places where the magic happens. We're venturing into the Melbourne CBD where we'll find out which venue said no to Lady Gaga. We'll reveal which international star tried to have a heckler kicked out of the forum and we'll hear how Madonna's foray into stand-up comedy went. Spoiler alert, it didn't go so well. Yep, so we're talking jokes of the calibre of like, you know, what do you call the useless piece of skin around a penis, a man, that kind of stuff. And I remember the keyboard player in the band had like a pre-recorded laugh track and like zingers and it was... 
like if you had paid to see a comedian like that, it, uh, you would be like, this is really bad. But there was an awkward laughter because the fans were like, ah, it's Madonna being funny. When's this going to end? Okay. This episode of Always Live was written and researched by Jeff Jenkins, Mikey Carl, and Luke Wallace. Audio production by Ben Oakley. Produced by Dave Carter on behalf of Media Heads. If you dug this podcast, feel free to share it, write a review, and subscribe to the series on your favourite podcast app. Sharing is caring. And if you want info on some awesome live gigs coming soon to Victorian stages, follow Always Live on Facebook and Twitter, or visit the website, alwayslive.com.au. I'm Alex Leahy. Catch you at the next gig. Hey guys, it's Matilda Pearl. I couldn't do what I do without my band by my side, so don't do life without your mates by yours. Take care on the roads this summer, look out for each other, and most importantly, let's keep the band together.